Hello and welcome to the podcast, Natalie Nahai in Conversation, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and the living world. Join me and some wonderful guests as we explore how we might envision and create a more flourishing future for all in the face of accelerating technological advancement, ecological disruption and systemic change. If you'd like the opportunity to meet me in person and explore these themes in greater depth, I'd love to invite you to the Flourishing Futures Salon. This is an exciting series of intimate, curated gastronomical gatherings that combine locally sourced food and elegant wines with meaningful, thought-provoking conversation. These are enchanting, poignant and memorable evenings designed to bring together diverse perspectives with the aim of cultivating community and vibrant new partnerships. If you'd like to attend the next gathering in London, please sign up at ffsalons.com to register your interest. When we have the next date scheduled, you'll receive a private invitation and a special listener's discount. I'm excited to meet you if you choose to come. And in the meantime, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. As we approach the winter solstice and the longest night of the year, I'm delighted to share with you what has become a cherished tradition of reflection, contemplation and looking ahead to the year to come. In this conversation, I rejoin Manda Scott and Della Duncan for a collaborative midwinter offering from myself, Accidental Gods and the Upstream podcast. As we gather to reflect on what's been an extraordinarily turbulent, confronting and unexpected 12 months, We share some of the key themes of inquiry and growth we've explored on our podcasts. We trace what we find when we each go upstream from the challenges we're facing today. And we explore some of the gifts, stories and resources that can support us as we step into the months ahead. If you don't know them already, to introduce my companions, Manda Scott is a novelist, podcaster and smallholder. Formerly a veterinary surgeon, Manda's novels have been shortlisted for the Orange Prize, the Edgar and the Saltire Award, and has won the McAlvany Prize. She is host of the Accidental Gods podcast, which showcases individuals and organisations at the emerging edge of our world to set the foundation for a future we'd be proud to leave the generations that come after us. Her latest novel, Any Human Power, is available for pre-order now, and I'll include the links in the show notes. We're also joined by Della Z. Duncan, a renegade economist based in the San Francisco Bay Area. She is a co-host of the Upstream podcast, a rights livelihood coach, a faculty member at the California Institute of Integral Studies, a senior fellow at the London School of Economics, a founding member of the California Donut Economics Coalition, and the designer and co-facilitator of the Cultivating Regenerative Livelihood course at Gaia Education. This is always a special episode for me, and I'm very grateful to be able to dive into conversation with these two brilliant women. I hope you find it inviting and inspiring, and I wish you a peaceful winter solstice and a fruitful new year. All right, well, welcome. So good to be in conversation with you two, and and happy December solstice. Uh, let let us start with some introductions. This is our is this our third year that we've been doing this together? I think so. Um, yeah. So, you know, who are you in this moment as we join together today? Fourth. It is our fourth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely a tradition by now. 
It is a tradition. So a solstice tradition, the three of us gathering. Let us begin with our introductions and also a little of our year in review. So what has happened for you on your podcast and in your life? What highlights, what themes, and perhaps what insights? So Amanda, can I turn to you first? Thank you. Yes. All right. So I'm Amanda Scott. I'm host of the Accidental Gods podcast and also a novelist. And this year, this year has been the year of editing for me. I, I just, so we're recording at the beginning of December and I handed in at 10.30 yesterday morning, <laughs> um, having written 40,000 words since October 15th. So it's been a really big burn. And this is, this is my novel. I used to write historical novels. This is a novel of trying to take where we are and where we are is a changing space and has been it's, it's two and a half years writing this novel and the world has changed a lot since then. It it was set when I first started writing 21. It was set in 2023, which is the far distant future. And by the time it comes out, it'll be, you know, an alternative history. So there's nothing one can do about that. But it's been a really interesting experience of trying to write a way forward that works to a future that we would be proud to leave behind. Because it's hard. I've been realising getting all the nuts and bolts of the things that all three of us talk about in our podcasts. And I have been listening manically to podcasts, <laughs> bringing in ideas, talking to people, how to weave all those together in a coherent narrative that doesn't just talk to our echo chamber, but talks to, you know, the people who still seem to think that business as usual is an option has been interesting. And I think so I think for me, the big themes of the year have been the understanding of how fast we're heading for the cliff, that much faster than I thought, of seeing tipping points happen that I didn't think would happen in my lifetime, and, and they just rolled past this year, of realising how close we are to the edge of AI. You know, we had the Eliezer Yakowski podcast on Bankless back in April, but then we had Mo Godat on, um, what is it, Diary of a CEO, and then um, Mustafa Suleiman on the Centre for Human Technology. I will remember its name in a minute. You're undivided attention. And then all of that, you know, Biden, Biden producing an executive order of 800 pages. That, when I started writing, I had a few friends on the fringes of tech going, AI is going to be an issue, guys. And we we're all going, oh, really? OK. And now it's here. So that's been big. Um, and personally, I had I had COVID. <laughs> I lost a couple of months to COVID. Um, and my dog died in January. And I am obsessively looking for a puppy. So there's a bit of me that's still planning ahead for the world where it'll be worth having a puppy and, and you know, it'll survive and all of that sort of stuff. And the rest of me is looking at a world where modernity is in breakdown and I have no idea what replaces it. So that's me. Thank Over you. Over to Natalie, I guess. <laughs> yeah, Natalie, what about you? So this year has been a turbulent year and it started out in quite a ceremonial space in a way. Um, I was down in, in Embercombe reconnecting with nature after what had been a very tech-intensive time. And one of the things that I've really noticed in an embodied way more than just in a theoretical way is quite how entangled everything is. Um, and it's, it's a funny, well, not funny as in haha, but funny as in curious to watch the ways in which decisions that feel far away impact us in very close quarters. So for instance, all of the technology disruptions, AI, 
I know quite a lot of people who at the beginning of this year were laying off employees and outsourcing their functions to ChatGPT. And that was in its earlier iteration, never mind the things it can do now. Um, Companies uh, changing their tactics, firing staff, people realizing that actually if they're going to get anywhere, there needs to be a greater sense of collaboration, community resilience. So there's just been a lot of change, certainly in the in the kind of fields that I'm working in, that have pointed towards kind of a depending on the, the perspective, an opening up of the fact that things are different and they're not going back. And on the flip side, this kind of helplessness of, well, fuck, if it's this bad, we're just going to double down on whatever we were doing before and just pretend it's not happening. And so there's this really curious thing where there's, there's this, this turbocharging of people coming together. I went to the Planet Local Summit in Bristol a few months ago, which was one of the most extraordinarily uplifting gathering of people that I have ever encountered. And it was so vital and, and joyful and robust. And it, it made visible communities of people who are doing work in complementary spaces, I suppose, in different parts of the world, and realising that there is a huge movement with very many different faces working tirelessly, and I'm going to include within that practices for rest, so modelling, not just like the burnout culture, but working and modelling tirelessly with conviction and all of the other stuff that's around to create lived realities of what we need to do in order for the future to be different, in order for these combinations of factors, you know, to be lived. And, and so I've kind of gone on this sort of weird journey where I feel like I'm very much straddling what I still feel are kind of two separate worlds, although obviously they're not. And in a recent conversation with Joe Confino, he was saying, but they're not separate. This is also part of the shift we have to make, which I completely get, but it's quite hard to do practically between, let's say, the kind of corporate, um, extractive, uh, exponentially, um, like exponentially grow, or quote unquote, because we can't grow exponentially, but that sort of, that side of things. And the other side, which is kind of a human scale, human paced, reckoning with who it is that we want to be as a species, like these existential questions, stepping into a quality of presence that is harder and harder to access when we're completely plugged into our devices. So it's kind of like straddling these two worlds of, of the system as it is now that we, you know, we said, I still have to pay my bills and my mortgage. And also the other side, which is, okay, I'm going to hold my full moon music nights and I'm going to gather with my friends and I'm going to paint in my studio and my phone is going to be off. And I'm going to sing music and I'm going to go spend some time in the forest and being able to hold both and, because that's, it's also that it's like, how do you chart a path forward when you have to find a way to live in this complex, fractured world. And I think there's something in there around deepening one's roots or a practice, certainly with relationships, community building is huge, um, that I think has been a real lived somatic revelation to me this year of this is what it feels like to actually build resilience with other people, to come together um, and come away feeling connected and recharged in the face of unthinkable questions from AI to ecological disruption to, you know, do we have a future? Yeah, so that's kind of, and the guests on the podcast have reflected that, but I don't want to eat up too much more time. So Della, I'd love to ask you the same question. What's your year looked like in terms of peaks and troughs and everything in between? 
Well, first, just to celebrate um, everything happening for you too, and as you're as you're sharing, I'm thinking of, you know, a metaphor of our livelihood gardens and the soil being our resilience and self care. So I'm happy to hear of the the singing and the painting and the the the, the puppy that's soon to come into your life. So all the ways that we're resourcing ourselves and and something you said not only around like community doing it together I'm, I'm thinking of that Audre Lorde quote about you know there is no liberation without community so just hearing that to do this work in 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 connection and relationship so happy to hear of what's going on for you too um, for me, it's been a very full year on the podcast. I wrote down all of the conversations that we had had this year. And I say we, because I am a co-host along with Robert Raymond. So just want to acknowledge and appreciate him. Um, and yeah, I was just feeling a lot of gratitude for everyone who was willing to come onto the show and our, you know, listeners and, and, and folks just really feeling gratitude for the community that is, that is part of the upstream podcast and our ecosystem of podcasts around social change. Um, and a few themes, one of them has been really a learning, really the podcast can be a learning experience. And so learning about Marxism and communism and revolutionary left theory has been really fascinating. We've also gotten to have a few more lighthearted and fun conversations around beer and the story of the Anchor Steam Brewing Company, um, the political economy of jazz, as well as uh, this model coming out of Japan called Half Farmer, Half X. So just these beautiful, lighthearted, um, fun conversations, as well as many very deep and very uh, grief-filled conversations on what's happening in the world. So we got to cover Stop Cop City, for example, and then we're currently doing a, a series on Palestine. Um, so it's that, you know, balancing of evergreen and, and learning. We also had a conversation on capitalist realism, for example, um, on the text, what is to be done by Lenin. So it's like deep learning, but then also trying to be current and present with what's happening in the world and to honor that pain and move through that together in a way that is like, how, what can we learn from what's happening right now and how can we contribute? So I'd say those are some some elements of the year in review. Um, and with that, I'm going to hand over to you, Natalie, for our uh, ritual of asking our beautiful questions. <laughs> Thanks, Stella. That was very concise. Um, so the question that I'd like to offer back to you, and I'm sure you're familiar with this by now, is what do you sense or imagine is going on in the global human psyche at this moment as we gather? Hmm. Yeah. Um, when I think of this question, I think of in Buddhism, which I know is a theme for our podcast, <laughs> this concept of the ultimate dimension, this kind of fabric or layer that we're all connected to, should we tap into it? And when I feel into the global psyche, what I feel is that it is lonely meaning not of us are tapping into it a lot or often or as deeply as we could. Like I'm, I'm grateful for the teachings and the practices, the meditations that have taught me or informed me about the global psyche and how I may tap into it. Um, and I, you know, as I say that too, I reflect on how 
we have much more um, medicine ceremonies in the Bay Area where I am, um, you know, mushrooms, psychedelics, et cetera. So maybe there are more people tapping into the global psyche. However, it just feels like there is this collective fog or numbing. And I know social media has been a theme for us, AI, as we mentioned. So for me, I think of the global psyche as kind of either forgotten or folks aren't accessing it as much as um, we could and would be of benefit to us right now. And when I tap into it, the phrase of this year for me or the invitation has been rest in presence, radiate love. Mm. Rest in presence, radiate love. That came through for me at the beginning of this year. Um, So when I tap into the global psyche, I feel that sense of being held and connected in the web of life. And I am more able to rest in presence and radiate love. So thank you for that question. That's beautiful. Amanda, how do you begin to answer that question right now? I think on on a similar level, I would be surprised if we weren't all on a similar level. But I think one of the things that feels different to this time last year for me is this what Della just said about connecting into the web of life. And what I've noticed with the people who come on the dreaming workshops and the accidental gods workshops is and perhaps this is because this is what I'm putting out in the world. But you know, 10 years ago, people were asking questions about their own lives. How can I find the perfect job? How can I find the perfect partner? Where do I live? And now they're asking, how do I connect to the web? And how do I find that place? And this is a phrase that I got from Della when we were at Schumacher together, is that place where my the world's greatest need and my heart's deepest joy interact. Where does my heart's deepest joy meet the world's greatest need? And people are really seeking that. And then seeking that connection to the web of life. And there is a there is a level at which that feels stronger to me. And when I connect into the web insofar as I understand how to do that, it feels vibrantly shimmering and alive. And and there are it was a very interesting part when I had COVID and I was basically unconscious for a while. But I was doing I was doing work that I had never done before. I was meeting whatever we call the entities that connect with us that I had never met, who were inviting me to open in ways that I had never been open before. And it's it's been really transformative. And it feels as if when we step into that space and say, I am here, we're being met now much more strongly than before. And I don't know if that's because I am in a different place or because the web is in a different place. But that feels, on one side, that feels really alive and potent and connected. And then... On the other hand, I I meet up quite often with a group of us who all teach shamanic stuff and we meet up once every six weeks or so on Zoom and we are beginning to feel, or I am beginning to feel, and they are saying yes with me, who knows, that there is that which is fed by our absolute loving life, the moment by moment being in love with the divine and allowing that to flow through us. And it's compassion and connection all feed that. And there is that which is fed by grief and fear and despair. And I was really struck by something somebody said in one of Della's podcasts about um, that the capitalist system is the commodification of grief. Hmm. And that it's it's accelerating where you know it is running for the, the cliff edge in a way that 
the thing, this is psychopathy in action. And so there is something that is fed by that and there is something that's fed by the compassion and and each of them ratchets up and and at some point that that tension cannot be held. And so I think for me, I think exactly what Natalie was saying, I think Della as well, it behooves those of us who want to connect, to connect with everything that we possibly have in order to balance out the disconnect. And final thing, the, the other thing that, that has really struck me, talking to Anna Lada and Len Murphy, the concept of moving from a trauma culture, which I would suggest is the commodification of grief, to an initiation culture. And that that process is ongoing and is, again, unfolding for each of us. And I can feel that happening. I have no idea where it goes. But the trauma culture, there are parts of all of us that will want to hang on to it because it's what's known. And how do we get our claws out of that and move it through? But it feels like that's much more in process than it was this time last year. So I think the global human psyche is in transition, is the short answer. Over to you, Natalie. How do you answer your own question? I always find this a bit really tricky. It's so much easier to be uh, asking the questions. So someone that I spoke with recently in conversation, we were talking about how human beings are like a, a constellation or democracy of selves, that there's, there's always different selves or aspects within us that constellate to create some kind of dynamic form that over a span of a life constitutes us, our sense of dynamic identity, let's say. And I think that given that life is sort of fractal in form, you know, that you kind of scale up and you see similar patterns to when you scale down, the way that I would begin to answer that question about the global human psyche is that, again, if we think about it as a, as a constellation of factors, there's so much inner tension, conflict, reckoning. And I think my, my feeling is, and it goes to your point about trauma and initiation, is that we're at this moment where it's becoming impossible, even for those who are lucky enough to be in, well, lucky slash unlucky, enough to be in industrialised countries where we have greater protection for the time being from the worst effects of climate devastation or ecological disruption. Even for those of us in those countries, it's becoming harder and harder to ignore the, the fear, the horror of what we're doing, the horror of what's coming if we don't change course. And I think there's, there's something that I'm noticing with people that I'm speaking with, and obviously it's kind of like a self-selecting group, but there's, there, there is the grief, but beneath that, there's a deep yearning. There's a sense of longing and, and loss and wanting for life. And I think that's where I'm most interested in tapping into, because among all of the different elements that constitute the global human psyche, which is entirely enmeshed within the natural living world, because we're just an expression of it, the question becomes, well, how do we find a way to bring all of those parts around the table within ourselves and then within those of us who are populating the earth at this moment. And if you're in, interested in kind of ancestral work, those that came before and those to come up. So there's a lot of ways that you can start to weave. But I think that's, that's the key thing, I think, in this moment, is that there is beginning to be a reckoning with the fragmentation of our, our sort of species-wide psyche, the harm we're inflicting upon ourselves and upon others, the longing for there to be something different, and and hopefully increasingly a willingness to crack open and allow ourselves to feel. 
And I don't think it's happening everywhere all at once. I think for those of us who have the luxury to have these conversations from the safety of our homes, you know, it's it's easy to talk about it if we're just feeling the emotional ripples and not actually yet physically having to deal with precarity. But but there is this invitation to really be present with what's happening. And Manda, oh, sorry, Della, to your point about the the presence that you mentioned, of being able to really plug into that, go deeper beneath the waves and keep going down until you reach the rock, which is the bedrock of life, which is hopefully love, even though there's a lot of complexity. So that's how I begin to answer it. Um, yeah, and that beauty is one of the ways that we that we find to reckon with the things that we find unbearable. Thank you. So over to you. Della, <laughs> you and me? Yeah, yeah, I'll go ahead. Um, yeah, I'm just reflecting on a, a quote. Um, it's like, I want to know if you can see the beauty even though it's not pretty every day. Mm. Who said that? I think it might be Rumi, but I'll have to <laughs> double check that. But yeah, just thank you for, for bringing that in. So the question that I would love to ask the three of us right now is around going upstream. So when you when you feel into your grief and what's happening in the world, what is it that's breaking your heart right now? And when you go upstream from that heartbreak or that grief, anger, sadness, despair, overwhelm, what are the root causes that are there? What do you see as the root causes? So... Uh, Natalie, maybe I'll, I'll ask you first. What is it that when you're feeling into the global psyche or what's happening in the world right now, what is it that breaks your heart? Mm. And what happens or what do you see when you go upstream? This is going to be a bit of a weird answer, I think, just because of what I've ingested the last few days. I, I managed to catch the short clip of Elon Musk saying to his customers, you know, go fuck yourselves. And I was like, okay, this is... This is one of the symptoms of a global story that has reached a point at which people can acquire so much power from such wounded places that they're acting out their, their deepest griefs and wounds on a global stage, which impacts the lives of literally millions, if not billions of people. And as I was watching this, and it's, it's weird because I think in the last year my sense around people has shifted I don't know what's happened but I'm kind of much more into their felt sense versus what I hear them saying and often there's a big mismatch between what's said and the presence of what they're carrying whether it's their body language or the tone of their voice or the anger that's emanating from them and I watched this and honestly my, my feeling was there's just this sense of sadness just a sense of sadness and I thought I wonder how many people who are in positions of extraordinary power are feeling completely cut off from the world. And I, you know, I don't, this could be complete projection, but I, I wondered, this question came up, and who don't have a sense of belonging, and who perhaps from that sense of, of dislocation and alienation feel that they have no other choice but to earn their, their rightful place, let's say, by by proving themselves, by dominating nature and others and the rest of it and and the amount of pain that is that one can witness at that level and that's then propagated to others so I think that's that's something that I've been really somehow kind of like taken a bit off guard by which is you know the fact that there are so many people who are perpetuating harms who themselves are suffering a lot 
And it's easy to say that when I'm not at the whim of their decisions, you know, if I'd been fired from Twitter when it was still Twitter, I'd probably feel quite differently. So again, you know, just naming the context. But so there's, there's that, which is the pain that is at the root of the people who are causing the most harm and feeling compassion for that. And then going upstream, the question that I come to time and again is, well, is this kind of reckoning with suffering in whatever form it might be? just part of a, it's kind of, is it just the name of the game? You know, is it, is it part of the, the, the system in which embodied incarnate life, it just, that's, that's part of it. It's unavoidable. And I think, you know, from, and I'm not a Buddhist, but I, I do like a lot of the tenets that are um, carried by Buddhist people that I've met. This idea that, you know, you have a choice whether you experience pain as suffering. The way that we relate to it changes how we experience it. And so I think at some level, on a, I guess like a, I don't know how deeply, because I'm not in pain right now, but on some level, conceptually, hopefully, I've got my mind accustomed to this idea of to be alive is to also include the experience of pain, and that's part of it. And then to go one step beyond that, or one step upstream from that, which is, that if we're lucky enough to live lives where we have love and we can express ourselves and we can write books and we can learn and we can talk to people and we can come together, that, that kind of the linchpin of the beauty, is it worth the pain and the suffering just to have the opportunity to be alive in this moment? And for now, my answer is a resounding yes. But so there's also this question of how do we frame the ways in which we we deal with what's happening in the world right now. And I think we need reasons to be here and reasons to long and reasons to love and reasons to go through what's going to be an increasingly turbulent experience. So for me, beauty is the root. And I think for different people, it's different things. But yeah, that was quite a long answer. I hope that wasn't too long. Um, yeah, Amanda, do you want to, to go back on that one? I'd love to. Yeah, yeah. I've written myself so many notes, things that arose while you were speaking. Because going upstream for me this year has also meant going backwards along the timelines and my ancestral lines and in the work that I work with. We have ancestors of our blood lineage and ancestors of our spirit lineage and what happens when I explore back a bit. And one of the things that really shifted for me this year, two, two things came together. One was something Jill Stein said, and I can't remember exactly what she said, but the, it made me understand that every human being alive on the planet, actually everything on the planet, was once hydrogen. And not only do we go back along an evolutionary line that takes us to being hydrogen molecules, but all the way along the billions of years the ancestors, the ancestors of the ancestors all survived long enough to produce the next in line. And the odds against that are vanishingly small. What are the chances that the three of us made it, that all of our ancestors for tens of thousands of millions of generations back survived long enough to produce something that survived long enough to produce something that survived long enough eventually to produce our parents who would survive long enough to produce us? It's vanishingly small. And so that, being the inheritor of that lineage, feels like everybody, even Musk, is that. 
And then I look, I've really been thinking hard about the initiation culture and the trauma culture and what happened. And I read a book sometime earlier in the year, God knows, um, Civilized to Death by Christopher Ryan. And, and one of the core takeaways for me in that one was the understanding that the agricultural, we call it revolution, as if it were progress, was a schism and it was not a voluntary schism. It was a default action taken under extreme duress and nobody wanted to do it. One of, the, one of the key phrases that really stands out for me in that book was him expressing the fact that, that good innovations, beaker technology or the ability to carve a hand axe differently, spread very fast right across the Fertile Crescent, which is where most humanity was at that point. The agriculture spread, and I quote directly, at the speed of an old man in carpet slippers. We did not want to do it. And even in Britain, we know from Graeber and Wengrow that agriculture came you know, about 5,000 BC and a couple of generations who went, oh yeah, we could plant stuff and harvest it. And then we went, no, we don't like doing this. This is very bad. No. And we went back to foraging hazelnuts for, for many generations, several centuries until it just didn't work. And at that point, not only things had changed, a, a huge lake of 144,000 square kilometres in North America that was meltwater had burst its banks, tipped all this fresh cold water and changed the planetary climate. And so the Fertile Crescent that had been massively abundant became less. And we had lost the skills of being forager hunters. We'd lost the nomadic skills. We had no choice. And we'd also, in forager hunter terms, apparently women had came into puberty at about age 18 and they had about one child every seven years. And then we settled down a wee bit. And we're beginning to have one child every two to three years. And We'd lost the capacity to go to, to be who we were. And, and so agriculture, this now we own land, now we take land, now we have to defend our land, the psychopathy that goes with it was not voluntary and was not progress. And yet we, the inheritors of that, have created a system that elevates the psychopaths and, and disempowers everybody else. And... I come back to that, that rupture. How do we heal that rupture? How do we heal the trauma? Because I, I had a conversation with Rachel Donald of the amazing Planet Critical podcast recently, and she very strongly said, even if Musk suddenly decided to take on board everything that we believe, he would be destroyed by, by the people who don't believe that. He would cease to have the power that he has. It's the system the people make the system, but the system is inexorable. And how do we create a new system that doesn't elevate the psychopaths? So I go upstream and I look at a broken system that broke about 10,000 years ago that has been elevating psychopaths. You know, the Romans were capitalists. They had a fiat currency on which they charged interest. The whole of the Boudican Revolution happened, re revolt happened because Seneca tried to get take back 26 million sesterces in loans with interest to people who had no idea what coins were, really. You know, here, we'll give you this money and you can pay us back and it, it, we want tax and we'll have the same stuff we just given you. And you're like, oh, OK, that's fine. Here, you know, you want a bag of your silver back? Have your bag of silver back? And then somebody turns up with a big club at the door going, oh, we want the rest now. Pardon? No, no, we'll take your children then. Sorry, they're slaves. It was, you know, the colonialization and it wasn't that the Romans invented this. They were, they were traumatized too. So how do we heal thousands upon thousands of years yet acknowledge that we have evolution from hydrogen in which we were an integral part of the web of life and 300,000 years of human evolution. We were an integral part of the web of life. 
So I go upstream to that schism. We have a system that is the inheritor of that schism. And I question and I wonder and I explore and I try to think, how do we heal that? Because we could we can play whack-a-mole with the individual bits, but actually it's it's that schism that we need to heal. And so I think for me the big question is what are we here for? Because it's not just to pay bills and die. We all know we are not here just to pay bills and die, and yet we live in a system where he who pays the biggest bills wins. You know, Musk is Musk because he can buy himself anything he wants, including a rocket to Mars. How do we how do we shift to a different value set? In a time frame that will work. So that was, that's, I look up upstream and that's where I get to. So Della, it's your question. Well, I'm just, what do you, happens with you when you look upstream? Just so enjoying listening to both of you and thank you for the, the different ways that you took that question. Um, the map that I've come to from all of the folks that I've gotten to ask this question of is we have the social and ecological political challenges of our time. We go upstream, the first stop upstream, we find supremacies, so power over thinking. White supremacy, capitalist supremacy, uh, patriarchal supremacy, human supremacy over nature, and more recently and into the next year, I'm going to be more exploring Christian supremacy. Oh, brave woman. <laughs> yeah. yeah, moving upstream from supremacy, um, I find separation from, because in order to have power over, we need to be separate from. And so going upstream from that, it's really that concept of ourself, whether it's that small, isolated, rugged, individualistic sense of self, or remembering ourselves to the web of life and a more ecological sense of self. And so then from that source point, we go back downstream and we have, you know, connection and solidarity and power with instead of power over. And then ideally ecological and social thriving or well-being for people on the planet. But this year, one uh, metaphor that's come to me strongly in framing that differently comes from a quote that I heard from Marian Williamson, um, which is this idea that when we feel or believe that we are a wave in the ocean, we are small and afraid of all the other waves of being trampled and pummeled and we have to resource ourselves and build walls and, and, and arm ourselves and all of that. But when we see ourselves as a wave of the ocean, we feel deeply interconnected and deeply powerful so I've been reflecting on that and actually spending time with, with the ocean and watching waves and just, you know, studying what does it mean to be a wave in the ocean and be a wave of the ocean and just dropping that question in, in my life, like, when am I feeling that? And whenever I'm feeling the scarcity or precariousness or anger or othering judgment, it's usually a wave in the ocean instead of a wave of the ocean and a related anecdote or story that has also helped with that. Um, Ram Das, who I've mentioned before in previous years, a great teacher, um, you know, he, he was once talking to his father and he said to his father, or his father said, why, why do you give away all your teachings, your CDs, your recordings? You just give it away. You know, you're not very uh, capitalistic. You know, you're not making money. There's some, there's, some, there's some money to be made here and you're not accessing it. 
And Ramdas turns to his father and he says, hey, you know, remember that case? Because his father was a lawyer. He said, remember that case that you did for Uncle Bob? You, you, you didn't charge him an arm and a leg, did you? And he said, no, of course, that's Uncle Bob. Why would I extort or, you know, charge Uncle Bob? And Ramdas turns to him and says, well, that's my problem. Everyone is my family. And that is wave of the ocean. And so it is when we think we can extort or extract or other or, you know, profit from anyone and anyone in the web of life that we are the wave in the ocean. And when we feel that everyone is family and that we are deeply connected in this web of life, then we are a wave of the ocean. So that that's where I've come to more so um, in this journey upstream. Anything you want to add, either of you, before we move to our next question? Um, Natalie, over to you first, because I'm organizing ideas, but there seemed to me a lot of stuff in there. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of stuff in all we've said about everything. I think for me, it comes back again to this, so that the, hearing you talk about the recognition of those around us as kin, as family, as Uncle Bob, <laughs> um, as, as something which is profoundly powerful, and also at the same time, living with that and living within a reality that is shot through with having to make ends meet. And it's, it's, it's that question of how do we really connect with and feel that sense of presence of being one with the ocean and holding lightly that sense of waveness. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe it's a question of, okay, for now this is me doing X, me doing Y but I'm rooted in something deeper that then shows up in these different spaces as a certain quality. I'm very curious about how those things dance together because in this moment, I think they're called to um, by a great many of us who can't just, you know, make the large life changes that maybe we'd like to. So it's that, it's kind of how do we find those courages to, to hold both? Um, and not lose sight of the, the being the wave of the ocean, seeing things lightly, I think. Amanda, what are you going to add to, to Della's beautiful, poetic <laughs> answer to that question? Well, possibly, I don't know, because it took me to a lot of places. I was listening to, today to one of Della's podcasts with a gentleman who was both Marxist and Buddhist, which was a really interesting bringing together of two arms of philosophy and two welding them into one. And, and we get to how do we bring this essence of the difference between a wave in the ocean and a wave of the ocean in, into our reality? Because I, I think it's really easy for it to be an idea. And living it is really hard. And living it for me, insofar as I can, and I have an extraordinarily privileged lifestyle because I get to sit here and write books, which is the best thing the world has ever done. And then I get to make podcasts, which is the second best thing the world has ever done. And and I get to, you know, walk up the hill. And at the moment, my level of privilege is huge. And I turn that into inwards in an attempt to be available for the web of life in whatever way it wants to express And I have a really profoundly deep 
felt sense that the way forward is in us evolving consciously to the point where everyone can do that. And then I spoke to Rachel Donald in a podcast that'll be out before this is out. And then I listened to the gentleman on Natalie's, uh, on Della's podcast. And both of them were absolutely adamant there is needs to be a violent wing in order that the pacifist wing can make difference. And it breaks my head in very big ways of that, but that's the old paradigm. Guys, that's not, that is not being a wave of the ocean. And I can hear the arguments of that and they're perfectly logical and I can see exactly where it's coming from and I can see exactly where it goes and I think where it goes is off the edge of the cliff. And so I, so I love that metaphor and I, I get to, it is urgent now that we find ways to make that real for people because for most of the people I bump up against in my everyday life, it's not even it's not even on their radar. Never mind becoming real. And even the people who want it to be real, it's an idea that's somewhere out here. It's not an embodied reality of this is how I live my life. And how do we what's the actual practical? How do we make that happen? I don't and I don't have an answer for that. It just it just arose as this huge <laughs> Yes, yes, you're right. And this is urgent now. This is really urgent. So it wasn't probably as poetic as you were hoping, Natalie. <laughs> it's much more, we need we need conscious evolution and we need it yesterday. But I think also it points towards something very tangible. And again, this is this kind of, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot. You're talking, both of you have talked about being in the service to life and to the flourishing of life. And I think one of the things that I hear a lot spoken about, obviously about community and the rest of it, is these ideas about what we can do or these ideas about how we might be able to be. And the practical realities might be something like bartering, sharing your resources, meeting up on a regular basis without your phone so that you feel that you're in community with people, making space for grief, being in ceremony, um, you know, shopping at the local uh, the local food store that supports community-assisted agriculture, if that's something that's available to you. I think there are lots of small practical things that don't require huge behavioural shifts that are the 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 forebears of, is that a word even? like that? It's kind of like it's the wave before the swell. It's like the, the ripples that then emerge into something else because they are ways in which to tap into a different kind of power. And and that, like the like at the four moon music nights, the gathering and the singing together always leads to someone sharing something that was heavy on their heart. And when they leave the the evening, we all feel better for having shared a variety of different feelings without having to fix anything. That's modeling a different system. It's not the kind of you're ill, let's fix it. So there's I think there are lots of small, practical, tangible things we can do and things that we need to ward against, like for example, I was interviewing Brett Scott, who wrote this book called Cloud Money, talking about resisting the cashless society because we need to have options. And if you suddenly create a system in which everyone is forced into digital um, you know, channels, a friend of mine wanted to go to a punk music night. This is in Barcelona last week. They denied him entry in a punk music night. They said, well, you have to use your phone to scan the QR code. He's like, but this is a punk music night. You do realise the legacy and the culture of what... So it's, it's these acts of resistance while living into those qualities that you want to see in the world. But you have to start from a small, localised space. And if you do that, then big changes can happen. Because then it feels possible. And I think that's the big thing. It's how does the small action connect to a felt sense of what it could be like and that sense of empowerment with that then has an impact on our 
imaginaries to be able to conceive of a bigger system and a bigger system that is connected to those specific ways of living. So I think starting small is is one of the ways in which we can do that. And then Della, have you got a, a response to a response? But have you got anything else that you wanted to say? Because I think that's this is taking us in a really generative conversation. So just there. Well, well, what I was going to share was, you know, knowing where we're headed in your question of theory of change, I think it feels natural coming after the upstream question, because it's like, you're right, Manda, that when you go upstream and you get this root cause, you know, understanding, you can't just stay there, right? You have to then go back downstream and enact the changes that Natalie is saying, but also Manda, you're like, how do we actually do this? So I think that's actually like a a natural journey. Shall I ask my question now then? (laughs) I'll ask you first. Yeah, yeah, go ahead and ask your question. I think they're connected. Okay, because you're segueing into it. Alrighty, so so the question that I've evolved quite recently on on my podcast, just because I really want to, I, I think asking questions is a political act and there are times when this needs to be asked. So my question was, and is, how long do you think we've got? And what is your theory of change? So Della, let's come straight back to you with that question. Great. Yes. So when you ask, so two questions, right? How, do, how long do we think we got? And then what is theory of change? The first question, I immediately hear Martin Shaw saying, when we claim doom over Earth, when we claim that Earth is doom, doomed, it's like we've walked out of the movie 15 minutes early. Hmm. And we could weave our grief to something other than that. We could weave it to possibility. And one of the greatest insights from this year on the podcast came from Jenny O'Dell, author of How to Do Nothing and Saving Time. And in that, she oh, invited this other way of thinking about time, this she, she exposed to me the ways that we think time is linear and that it's marching in a particular direction. Mm. Like climate change parts per million is just going up and we all see that graph of the exponential curve. There's so many exponential curves that I have really become aware that I see in my mind. And she gave this invitation to say, you know, let's say you have a conversation with a friend tomorrow. You could absolutely plan, what what do I want to say? What is it that feels important? How do I feel going into it? But when you're in that conversation, anything could happen. That person could be really receptive. They could be resistant. You could come to somewhere else. It could change directions. It could implode. It could connect. Like, you have no idea. And so the idea that we we think we have a, a sense of what's happening Um, But to weave our grief to possibility is to entertain, it might not go that way. And in fact, it could be otherwise. Hmm. Uh, So to be open to uncertainty and to the unexpected. And and this also came for me through Charles Eisenstein wrote an essay recently saying, you know, could Israel-Palestine be um, the fulcrum that turns the whole world towards decolonization and peace and, and harmony. And I was like, whoa, because again, I was seeing a march of progress that was just horrible, right? Mm. And like, what if, right? What would bravery, mm. courage, and and total a shift in in what's happening look and feel like? So I just, that's my uh, sense for that, that question. Um, how long do I think we've got? Kind of dodging the question in a way. And then the second the second point, the second question is theory of change. And this is where I want to weave it back to the conversation we were just have, having. So yes, this, this um, learning from this year around 
communism and Marxism and revolutionary left theory. And again, I want to just say some gratitude for Brett O'Shea, who you mentioned earlier, and and Alison Escalante, his his podcast host. Yeah, this this idea of, of violence and revolutionary left theory. This has this has been something that I've been working with, and the podcast has been working with through our our conversations. And you know, one one way this has come through is. Uh, August Nimps, who we interviewed about the Marxist perspective on elections, he said, you know, he, he just made clearly the connection between the state and capitalism and how if we in the U.S. particularly just have two parties, like, will we ever vote our way to systems change? And how unless we change the systemic structure and particularly the state, um, neoliberal capitalism will continue to erode the gains that we think we've won, such as reproductive healthcare for, you know, like Roe v. Wade in the United States, but also for what's happening where you are, Manda, the UK, the eroding of your healthcare, the NHS system. So it's like yes. we could we could have these wins, but if there isn't a change in that on that systemic state level, these wins will not be codified into something more secure. So that that that's why revolutionary left theory has been helpful and, and really seeing electoralism or even the new economy movement, such as like um, co-ops and things like that, as not enough for the systemic change needed. So I think that's that's part of it. And then in terms of the violence question and and really that conversation with Brett O'Shea was really, really, it, it's still working on me. But the the kind of insider thought there is, you know, the violence that the planet is feeling and um, oppressed peoples in the global south and also people of color, women as well, yeah, that is violence. So just seeing that structural violence as violence and what does self-defense mean and look like. Um, and how do we do it in more of an Aikido way or a calling people in versus calling people out? But I do think this transition to a post-capitalist future is going to take a lot more exercising of self and peer accountability. And that doesn't necessarily need to be forced, but sometimes it can be. So mm-hmm. that's where I come when I think about that question is... Um, you know, we will have our nose, but um, there, as Gopal Dianini once said to me, it's not just holding actions or nose. There's also a need for a pushing, a pushing back, a changing. It's not just a static no, a passive no. It's a pushing. So okay. that's a that's a part of the um, theory of change that I'm working with lately. Um, so I'll, I'll see if either of you want to add anything. And then of course, Natalie, we'd love to hear your thoughts. How long do we have? And what do you, what is your theory of change you're working with? So when I heard you ask the question earlier, Amanda, in a podcast with the lady who does the round tree. Sophia Parker. Sophia Parker. Very compelling conversation. When I heard you ask that question, I was walking down my corridor and out loud said to myself, how much time do we have for what? Exactly. And it yes. was a sense of, ah, yes. for what? Exactly. And, and, and it could be how much time do we have? Well, the first place my mind goes is, okay, until we're dead. And I was like, okay, no, but wait, hold on. Is, is that as, as imaginative as I can get? And I didn't come to an answer because I thought there were so many questions held within the question. And there is something about possibility and about 
Um, Della, you also mentioned, you know, the, the holding space for something different to happen, like the Israel-Palestine conflict, which is horrific, and one of a number of awful and horrific experiences that people have experienced ever since our species has been alive, I'm sure. I mean, it's part of our being alive, although hopefully we can evolve beyond it. I don't know if that's true or not, but let's see. Um, but the point that I was coming to when I was thinking about time for what, there's two things really that I want to, to point to. One of them was something that really struck me in a conversation between Joe Confino and Brother Fabhu, who is the abbot of Plum Village, who's, um, you know, Zen abbot. And they, well, I'll mention that first. They, they run a podcast called The Way Out Is In, and they were interviewing Jana Macy. That's one thing I wanted to say. The other one was, was about something else, about presence in small ways. So I'll come back to that. But the thing that really struck me on this podcast, as I was walking through on a very sunny afternoon, my neighbourhood, and coming into a square, and I was watching kids playing, as, you know, people do in, in Spain. It was bright and sunny, kids playing, parents having a cheeky beer, some tapas, a nice sense of vitality and life. And as I walk into the square, I'm listening to Joanna saying something along the lines of, imagine that you were, and again, this is within the Buddhist cosmology, imagine that you were somewhere in the cosmos, consciousness, knowing that the earth and its peoples, human, kin, I'm paraphrasing here, but knowing that the earth was going through this extraordinary time of transition. And you don't know if you're going to be the midwives for birth of something new or the doulas of a death. And I was thinking, well, as someone who does not want to have my own children, I don't like the idea of giving birth and being pregnant. It terrifies me. Um, and also there's other ways I want to be creative. But as someone who's seen other people go through that initiation in and of itself, life and death are dancing together at this knife edge. And she was describing this, and I was thinking about all of the things that are happening in the world, and this sense of contraction, it's like a labour, and the contractions are painful, and there is bloodshed, and there is horror, and there is pain, and there's also potentially room for initiation, and we don't yet know how, how this is going to unfold I don't want to say resolve because that feels, feels very final. I don't think it is final. It's more like a flow than, than, a, than a hard stop. But she was saying, you know, if you knew that this, this planet was in transition, wouldn't you want to come back and bear witness to and be present with this moment in time and with those who need your help? And she wasn't saying it from like the Christian saviour archetypal, I'm going to come in here and, you know, do it my way. It was more a sense of let me be with you together. Let's bear witness and be present. And that I shed tears, literally walking to the square, seeing life as it was, and hearing her say that. And I thought, God, we just don't know. We don't know. And I've kind of, that really went to my heart. And then in a small way, this came up recently when I had what I was expecting to be quite a fraught conversation, a negotiation. And I went to this meeting. And before I left the house, I caught myself. And I turned to my partner and I said, you know what? Just imagine if this goes so much better than we could possibly have hoped for, if it's completely surprising, if it entirely undoes any assumptions, what if something amazing happened and we don't know what it's going to be? And so I held that in my mind. I was like, we're going to stand here and we're going to just think into that and we're just going to go and see what happens. And I'm not, you know, I don't like negotiations. I go in quite defensive. That's kind of, <laughs> I guess, a relic of how I've been raised. And we went and the conversation was extraordinary and unexpected 
and new connections were made in the most remarkable ways. Within the first few sentences, and this was like a financial negotiation, we were talking about regenerative agriculture. We were talking about retreats up in the mountains. It's like, how, like, where does this... Different energy. Yeah, totally different energy. Um, and so to the point around systems change or theory of change... I'm always mindful and I do have this schism within me and it's an interesting kind of dynamic to dance between because it's quite tense at times. On the one hand, I have the lived experience of what it is when you show up to something with a different quality of presence, knowing that you could be entirely um, surprised by something extraordinary. And at the same time, I know that horrors happen. Sometimes they're completely arbitrary, non-personal, and this is also the nature of the reality in which we exist. And so it's kind of holding those things together. But I think the theory of change that I've most been struck by this year when I've, when I've interviewed, and this will come out in the new season of the podcast, people like Patricia Miguel Viveros, who's working in Mexico with women who've, ex who've experienced extraordinary traumas, and she's dancing them back into relationship with their bodies and with nature. Extraordinary work. Or, um, you know, people like Michael Schumann, who in the States is talking all about local economies. He's managed to change laws to help people to crowdfund local startups. Or people like Darcia Narvaez, who talks about the evolved nest. So neurobiologically, the impacts of creating cultures that support children that you see much more present in global southern countries mm. and cultures. So there's... There's all these pockets and theories of change that together create a constellated effect of what we can do when we bring our hearts and minds together. Um, and so that I'm, I'm, I am hopeful. I am hopeful. And Manda, before you begin, you know, one thing that uh, Natalie mentioned that um, it brought something up in me from your podcast with Sophia is the Meg Wheatley two loop theory, right? Where the, the idea of the um, the midwife or the person laying something to rest um, and whether that's separate or both and mm. loop one loop two yeah, yeah. so I, I don't know Manda if you could if you could just share that since that was part of your conversation that um, resonated with something that Natalie was saying well it was resonating with you you share it because <laughs> go with it yeah stay with it it's fine go yes so in your conversation with Sophia you um, she brought up Meg Wheatley and Two loop theory, which is this idea that instead of is is the system dying or is something being born, she framed it as both loops are happening simultaneously um, at the same time. So just two realities present in in the same time. Yeah, because that's the point of the question: is how long do you think we've got, and to what is not defined? That's that's why I asked that question. What's really interesting is where that takes people. Um, because we do live in this moment that is exactly a death and a birth. The, the earth, you know, people talk about saving the earth and everybody says the earth will continue. We may you know, achieve the extinction of 95% of all life if we really work at it and we're doing quite well at the moment. Um, and it's not going to be the, the, the hairless pink bipeds that keep going. It'll be the, you know, the amoebas in the bottom of the Marianas Trench that take over and some of the life in the soil and things like that. But, you know, the earth will keep going. Something will evolve. But but I keep coming back to we're in a complex system, not a complicated one. And Robin Wall Kimmerer has a beautiful quote, and I can't remember the exact detail, but it's something like time is not a straight line. Time is a drop in a, in a pool and the ripples are moving out and we have no idea moment to moment. I think one of the great 
harms of the schism that I was talking about is that we got locked into linear cause and effect. Even when the linear cause and effect was, I offend the psychopath God and the psychopath God smites me, it's still a linear cause and effect. Whereas when we are connected to the web of life, all we need to do is ask, what do you want of me? And let the broader web worry about the cause and effect. And I just do what I'm asked to do to the best of my ability. I show up and I am what only I can be in the best way that I can be. And that's all that is required of me. And it it removes a huge amount of responsibility of I have to work out why I'm doing this and where it's going. Because you can't know exactly as Della said, you have no way you can plan as much as you like. And I, this is one of the things I was talking to someone who runs a business podcast, a beautiful woman called Julia um, Sherbakov. And, and she said, you know, the thing everybody in business knows is that the moment you finish your business plan, it's obsolete, <laughs> even if it was not fiction to start with. And largely it is fiction. And yet everybody does it and everybody pretends it's not fiction. But that's not the way the world is. Why have you got your five-year plan? There is no chance at all, even if we weren't heading for a metacrisis, that five years from now, everything will be in stasis. As Brett said, and all of the Buddhists that, that you guys have talked to have said, change is the only constant. And, and we live in a complex system. Unpredictability is a given. And we don't know what happens. I, I had a conversation with Indy Johar that just touched me so deeply on so many levels. And he was talking about interbecoming at the emergent edge, the step beyond interbeing of consciously stepping to the very edge of our system and creating newness and not knowing. I, I was at lunch today with a, a couple of friends who I love dearly, and we were having exactly this conversation. And I was realizing even with people that I engage with a lot, how do we step beyond the, but what happens if X? I don't know, X is in the old system. It's Let's assume that X isn't a thing anymore. What happens if we give a building autonomy and then it interacts as an autonomous being with the community around it? What happens? We don't know. But it's going to be different than a building being a block of stuff that is basically a rent-seeking system that takes money out of people and pushes it to the people who don't need it. We don't know. So I think the unknowing, for me, my theory of change is we don't know. But I think what we can know is what are the values that underpin a future that we would be proud to have left behind. And and they are compassion, all the things that you guys have talked about, connectedness, being of, of the ocean, not in the ocean, being heart open, being vulnerable, being prepared to risk vulnerability in strange situations without the guarantee that it won't be weaponized and turned against us. Because we do live in a system that has learned how to weaponize other people's vulnerabilities very well, and it's very painful. But how can we take that risk again and again? Because in that risking, I loved what, Natalie, what you said about when people come to your evenings and events and, and somebody shares something that is breaking their heart and then everybody knows that it's okay to share that and it's okay to be heartbroken and if the grief is held with balanced with love I think then it's okay to grieve because there is a return path I'm working or I was working a little bit with Sophie Banks on trauma becomes locked in our bodies if we don't have a return path to a sense of connectedness and connection to each other and ourselves in the web of life 
And if we can give each other these little micro-return paths, then the trauma that is otherwise damaging becomes a learning experience and we can we can flow with it. So that's my theory of change is show up, be vulnerable, be connected, don't expect that we know everything, but be prepared to be the living edge of the interbecoming, emergent change, and then dance with whatever happens because time is not linear, exactly as you said. So does anybody have anything that they want to say with that or shall we move on? That's a wonderful Natalie. place to, You're looking to land, thoughtful. I think. No, just enjoying you. <laughs> enjoying I'm this. enjoying all of you. So, okay, so we had our, our other question, which was, what what do you bring as gifts to the table? So, Della, it's a while since you spoke. What do you bring as gifts to our, our traditional table now? One, uh, one gift, um, Bayawakumalafe, he said, what if this were not the time of enlightenment, but a time of endarkenment? So I wanted to bring that phrase in, endarkenment, particularly for you, Manda, I thought you'd yes, love that yes, phrase. Yes, heading into the dark nights. <laughs> um, yes. And, yes, and either whether that's, you know, literally for those of us in, in the Northern Hemisphere and, and the December solstice being the darkest or, you know, a more of a metaphorical endarkenment. Um, you know, what would it mean to, as we're all sharing, uh, to tap into the world's pain or, and, and to do that together, right? You don't have to do that work alone. You can be in ritual or ceremony or in, in, in sacred space to do that. But I do think our work that reconnects or our grief rituals um, really will serve us in this time um, and can allow us to move not you know, to transform our grief, anger, sadness, and despair into inspired collaborative action. So a time of endarkenment is one offering coming again from Biokumalafe. Um, I want to say the quote that I shared earlier, but correctly attribute it. <laughs> so it's actually Oriah Mountain Dreamer from a beautiful poem called The Invitation. And the quote is, I want to know if you can see the beauty, even when it's not pretty every day, I want to know if you can see the beauty and source your life from its presence. So that would be the, the offering, particularly for you, Natalie, who brought in beauty many times through your shares. So just, you know, may we all uh, tap into beauty um, and, and wherever we find it, wherever we can presence it. Um, and then the other kind of uh, gift for the next year in the California or the donut economics model has been another kind of theory of change in terms of changing the goal of the system, right? Uh, Kate Rayworth and the, and the donut economics team are really doing this work all over the world. And this past year have gotten a real uh, strong yes and encouragement from the universe to um, bring the donut more into form. And so uh Myself and a few other volunteers collective, we founded the California Donut Economics Coalition, and we just got a large grant that, you know, to be really honest, we didn't even seek out. It really came to us. I mean, this wow. is the universe saying, yes, continue this work. This feels good and important. So in the next year, we're doing the work to become a 
uh, a nonprofit, actually a worker self-directed nonprofit, you know, using sociocracy, pay equality, things like that, but also um, hiring for many positions. So offering many different plants for different people's livelihood gardens. So I feel very grateful to have gotten to do that work with this group and do this work very slowly and intentionally, really living in alignment with the new economy, principles and practices, and then giving that gift in 2024 you know, to California, but of course, as part of a larger movement to really change the goal of our economic systems to well-being for people on the planet. So that's another gift for this year. Amazing. Gosh, thank you. Yay. Profusion of gifts. It's a stocking filler. You've got like all of these amazing things. So Natalie, what would you bring to the table? So a few things. One thing that was so enriching for me this year that I think would be amazing for people to check out if they want to is the Planet Local Summit run in collaboration with Local Futures, which was established by Helena Norberg-Hodge. Check out those different projects. Absolutely extraordinary. And if you, I think the videos from the summit are now on YouTube. So if you feel even remotely interested, people like Bayouakomolafi, um, Michael Schumann, Darcia Narvaez, they, they were all there. Jeremy there. Lent was there. And Actually, Rupert Charles Reed Eisenstein, there. Rupert Reed. Um, it was basically, you know, and also um, Ian McGilchrist, um, Ros Watts. Like, I mean, it was just, it was a who's who of extraordinary people and and a lot of unsung heroes as well who were there with, with generosity and, and, you know, vim and vigor. So definitely check those out. The other thing that I think that I mentioned earlier that had a big impact on me was this interview. So The Way Out is In podcast, and the episode was number 12. It was Grief and Joy on a Planet in Crisis, Joanna Macy on the Best Time to Be Alive. So check that out. And then when I was um, spending more time in London two years ago, up until present day, I set up kind of a, a friend's salon called Flourishing Futures Salon, which is just an intimate curated dinner of about eight people in a house. And and it's become something which has in, increasingly been like tapping me on the shoulder. And so anyway, I've decided to take it live and make it available to more folks. And it explores what it means to flourish in a time of turbulence and change and aims to bring people from different disciplines together physically in a room in a gastronomical gathering over great wine to dialogue in a facilitated, robust, and hopefully life-affirming way. So um, if that strikes your fancy, that's ffsalons.com. Yeah, those those are my gifts for this year. Amanda, how about you? What are your gifts? Um, well, I at some point very soon, I'm going to send you both a copy of the book. Um, they're probably a, a, an unbound uh, book proof and advanced reading coffee, definitely. Amazing. I had hoped to have it by now. I was going to hold one up and go, look, book, but not quite yet. <laughs> and similar to Della, I wanted to offer you, because we are all in the Northern Hemisphere, and actually I recorded you know, the Southern, the the longest sun is an important solstice too, and the people in the southern hemisphere are doing that. And I have a recording that I made at our summer solstice. So if people listening are in the in the southern hemisphere, um, I can send a link to you guys. You can put it on your various things so that because it feels to me really important, really important that as we connect to the web of life, that we connect to the land that we're on. So I wanted to give for you guys. I wanted to light you a virtual fire for you to sit with. At the darkest night, because part of the ritual of sitting with a flame as the nights are darkest goes back 
beyond time immemorial. It goes back to the point where we learned how to sit with the flame and possibly even before that. The, the passage tombs in Ireland, one of the virtual things I would love to give you guys is the chance to go into the passage tombs. Have either of you been? Mm-mm. No? Pre-Paleolithic, um, I think, it's certainly many thousands of years ago, these stone structures were built that are still watertight in Ireland. And they it's a bit... It's a bit like an igloo in that except you go in a quite a long tunnel and then there's the the dome. And it has a light box that is oriented to the rising of the winter solstice sun. And for three days, either side of the winter solstice, provided it's not cloudy, the light and they they replicate it because it's booked up for about thirty years in advance for people it takes six people in there. But they replicate it and it, and the light comes across and it starts like a, it's a hairline of light and it gradually gets wider and then it goes away again to be a hairline. And you're in a womb-like structure. You're in absolute darkness with the stone all around you and the earth beneath. And then this light comes in and broadens and narrows again. And it's even when you know it's electric light and it's not anywhere near the winter solstice, it's an extraordinary and moving and visceral experience of connectedness to the earth and the fire and to everything that matters. So I wanted to to give you that sense and, and a little lit fire. And then as you were talking, I, I did a podcast recently with a gentleman called Hugo Spars, who has set up a company called River Simple Movement, and they're making hydrogen cell cars. They want to make personal transport not involve rare earths and, and certainly not fossil fuels. However, for me, the most exciting thing that he's done, and I'm thinking of Della and your things that you're setting up, he set up the future guardian governance model. Is this something that you both know about? I've heard of it. So, but I don't know it so they have investors <laughs> and they're very keen to have lots more investors. If any of you know anyone who'd like to invest in personal transport in ways that isn't going to kill things, send them that way. But the investors have no voting power. Instead, there is a board that is consisted of six incorporated companies, each of which has one member. And one is for the investors and one is for the workers, speaks for the workers, and one speaks for the supply chain. So now their supply chain is is all working on how can we produce, say, the catalytic converter for the hydrogen cell in a way that we take it back and we, we recharge it and we send it back to you rather than we want you to use it and throw it away. Uh, one speaks for the local community. And one speaks for the environment, local and global. And in the book, when I've stolen this and imported it wholesale and credited them, I've also created a seventh one that speaks for the generations yet unborn. And and each of those, so, so the investors do still have a say, but they're one voice in six or seven. And it completely transforms. And I, I wake up sometimes, I think, imagine if every company on the planet incorporated like that tomorrow, which they could do, Imagine being a worker in a company where you know that you have someone who speaks for you on the board and you have the right of recall. If that person is not actually representing what you need them to do, you bring them back and you send someone else. And the local environment and the local community and and the supply chain and the customers, I think it would transform everything. So I just wanted to offer the understanding of that. It exists and it's happening. And it's, it's another model of how do we change the world that we live in in a practical way. So I offer that too. So thank you. Thank you, guys. I think we're heading towards the end and actually it didn't go on as long as I thought. Are there the closing things that either of you want to say or even other questions that you want to ask? Natalie, 
what's arising for you? I'm just really grateful that we get to have this chat, you know, together once a year, learn things, share things, open up and um, and make visible some of the the areas that are beautiful and joyful and there's change. Like It's very easy to get trampled into a sense of helplessness. And I think part of the, the potential of this moment, which is huge, is to keep shining a light on all of those things that are extraordinary, that can open up new possibilities. So that's that's where I am right now in our conversation. And just massive thanks to you both for, for being here and talking so generously. It's, it's just wonderful. It's a gift. Thank you. And Della, what's arising for you? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm returning to the, to the wave metaphor and, and something Natalie brought up around, it felt like diversity and unity, you know, or soul and spirit, where we have a lot of shared uh, views and even shared guests right? Like I saw Max Isle on your podcast, Manda, on The Green Transition. And Natalie, we got to interview Brett Scott as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And then a lot of folks that you mentioned in the Planet Local Summit, um, we both have gotten to speak with. And of course, Joanna Macy being such a a mentor and guide. And so that, that kind of unity and yet diversity in terms of, you know, what are the questions that are alive for each of us? What are the insights that have impacted us? Where we are in the world, right? Like our experience, our locations. I'm just appreciating the diversity and unity of um of each of us and and where we are in the world and and yeah, feeling gratitude for that. And I think, yeah, that um in the metaphor of the ocean, it'd be like, you know, the wave is the expression of the individuality, the uniqueness, maybe the soul. But when you go under the water, and I'm, I'm reminded, and you even brought this up, you went under the water, you took us to the rocks, which you said were love. When I go under the water from like scuba diving or snorkeling, there's such a peace, there's a presence, there's a calmness, mm. no matter how choppy and wavy things are above. And so, yeah, just returning again to that resting in presence and radiating love and could be in conversation with you both and sitting around the fire together, metaphorical, virtual, et cetera, for a long time. So wishing you well on the solstice and beyond and all of your listeners, all of everyone listening, may this conversation be a benefit to the web of life. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And the one thing I wanted to give you both that I didn't include there was puppy breath. I am so hoping to. A puppy breath is the best sentence. It's, it's just magic. And if you could bottle it and give it to everybody, the world would be peaceful within minutes. So puppy I'm just breath. sending you puppy breath as well because it's very special and it doesn't last very long and it's, it's just grand. So there we go. Be fully present in your physical body. If you're sitting, feel your seat on the chair and your feet on the floor. If you're lying, feel the connection from the back of your head, your shoulders, your hips, your heels. Wherever you touch, send roots from that place down into the physical reality of the earth. Send your roots down through the topsoil, through the subsoil, through the rock layers, deep through the rock layers, into the magma layers, and into the white, hot, molten metal at the heart of the earth. Make your roots big, like tap roots, 
And when those tap roots reach the center, send other roots out all the way around in the total sphere so that they go out from the molten metal, through the magma, through the rock, through the subsoil, through the topsoil, getting smaller and smaller and finer and branching until an endless array of tiny rootlets is just below the surface of the earth. So that you are held by a root ball that bridges from the heart of the earth to your heart. And then also open a connection from the crown of your head to the heights of the sky. So that the three hearts connect the heart mind of the universe through your heart to the heart of the earth and the heart of the earth through your heart to the heart mind of the universe. And with that connectedness, with your sense of your fully embodied physical self, bring your awareness to the edge place where the physicality of yourself meets the rest of the all that is. The place where your skin meets the air and the air meets your skin. Have a sense of the temperature difference wherever you are. From the uncovered places, your face, your hands, maybe your legs and your feet. If there's a breeze where you are, feel the air move. If the air is still, even so, feel its presence as the boundary between the flesh and the bones and the teeth of your being and the rest of the all that is. And from there, bring all of your attention to that small patch of skin where the base of your nose meets your upper lip. Bring your awareness there so that when you breathe in through your nose, you can feel the air move. And when you breathe out, you feel it move warmer. Hold your attention in this place for three full breath cycles, all the way in and all the way out. And then follow the next breath all the way in through your nose, cold at the back of your throat and down into your lungs as your ribs move out and down and your diaphragm sinks. And bring your attention with it down into your heart space. Bring all of your awareness to the space in the centre of your chest. And from here, in this endarkened space, I want you to imagine all of yourself in an endarkened space. We are heading into the long nights, into the longest and the darkest night of the year. And in this darkness, we can hold the seeds of all potential. We can rest at the balance point between what has been and what is yet to come.
and so sit in absolute darkness with your sense of rooting to the earth and your connection up to the heights of the sky. Let go of thought. Let go of responsibility. Let go of the needing to do and rest in this place of being at this balance point, at this endless rippling time where all that is comes together in this one moment, where there is no light, where there is only being, where your breath comes into your heart space and your awareness is all of your heart space and of the darkness surrounding you. And with your next breath, I want you to kindle the smallest possible grain of an ember in your heart space. Or if you prefer, the smallest possible seed of a flower in the absolute darkness, the smallest possible ember of fire or seed of new beginnings. And the warmth of your breath touches it. And the warmth of each breath touches it. And so it grows. The ember grows into a flame or the seed begins to grow to a flower. Sit with this. Let each breath touch it. Let each breath cause it to grow until the whole of your heart space is utterly consumed with the fires of the dark night or the seed of new beginnings. Bring your attention fully to your heart space, to the fire that grows there with each breath, to the seed of new beginnings that flowers with each breath.
Simply be with the growing, with the holding, with the dark space around you, and with the life that your breath enkindles. Bring your attention always back to your breath, to the life that it brings, to the warmth and the leap of the flames, or the slow unfurling of the many, many petals of the flower. Your breath brings life, it brings light, it brings colour. How does it feel? How does this life feel inside you? Can your breath bring also a sense of joyful curiosity at the life that is growing inside you? Can it bring gratitude? Can it bring love for the light and the life and the breath such that that love expands to fill the whole of your heart space? such that the gratitude expands to fill the whole of your heart space, such that the awe and wonder of the joyful curiosity expands to fill the whole of your heart space.
and then. Sit one last time with the fire that your breath has kindled or the flower that your breath has brought to life. Appreciate the life that it is. Appreciate the life that your breath has brought. Let the joyful curiosity and the gratitude and the love, the three pillars of the heart-mind, fill every part of your heart space and let the essence of these spill out and out into the rest of your body. Through your diaphragm, down into your abdomen and your pelvis and down your legs and into your feet. And up and out and down through your shoulders, into your arms, to your hands, to your fingers. And up through your neck to the hinge of your jaw and up into your skull to fill the whole of your face and the whole of your head. Let your eyes be alive with the fire and the flame or the flower. Let the whole of your being dance to the life of the flame or the light and the colour of the flower, to the awe and wonder that attend them, to the great gratitude for their being, to the compassion for self and other that is the essence of love. Let these fill you, and as they fill you, bring your attention back to your breath, to the sense of it flowing through your nose and cold at the back of your throat, and down into your lungs as your ribs move out and down into your diaphragm sinks, and follow it out as your ribs move up and in and your diaphragm rises. Bring your attention once again to that small patch of skin where the base of your nose meets your upper lip and follow it for a breath cycle all the way in and all the way out and then expand your attention to all of the rest of that edge place where the physicality of yourself meets the rest of the all that is. Feel the place where your skin meets the air and the air meets your skin. The uncovered places of your face and your hands, perhaps your legs and your feet. Feel the air. Know the edge where the flesh and the bones and the teeth of your being meet with the physicality of the rest of reality. And know that this is not the edge of your being, only the edge of your physical self. And then bring your awareness back to the full physicality of yourself, to the places where you connect with the earth, your seat on the chair, your feet on the floor, if you're lying, the back of your head, your shoulders, your hips, your heels. Bring your attention back to the roots that sink into the earth, and the root ball that we made that connects the heart-mind of the earth with your heart-mind with the heart-mind of the universe. And with that connectedness, begin to move. Roll your shoulders, move your fingers, move your toes. 
and then softly, gently, open your eyes and with a very soft gaze, look around you to anchor yourself back in this time and this place. Thank you for listening to Natalie Nahai in Conversation. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It means a lot to me to read your support, especially as this is a self-funded project into which we pour our love and time and attention. To find out more about my work and how to get involved in my projects, you can head over to natalinahai.com, explore additional books and resources at natalinahai.com forward slash resources, and check out the gatherings I run at ffsalons.com. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find me on Instagram and LinkedIn at Natalie Nahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode. <laughs>